this whole system was built on a simple logic, which is if we create lots of people who really don't have a lot of means, they will become cheap labor, they will become consumers, and they will become taxpayers. And you create a pyramid of growth that enriches a few at cost to many. Basically, you convert town halls where people have a say over their lives into shopping malls where they don't have a say over their lives, and you enrich a few people. If you want to reverse economic systems that basically externalize their costs, you start by investing enough in children to ensure that they're born and raised in conditions complying with the Children's Rights Convention. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Carter Dillard. Carter is the policy director of the Fair Start Movement, an organization which advocates a fair start for every single child on the planet and has reframed that issue as a climate movement. When researching family planning, Carter noticed a logical fallacy in our legal systems around the world, which is that no country follows the Children's Rights Convention that every child has the right to housing, to welfare, to security. What Carter noticed and researched is that family planning systems were made private in the 20th century in order to ensure a growing population which could feed the economic machine. He and his colleagues at Fair Start Movement have since campaigned for a fair start for every child on the planet. They have a petition before the UN Human Rights Council and forthcoming constitutional litigation in the United States. Carter joined me to discuss his research into the history of family planning and a vision for how to reframe family planning reform as an active climate policy, which could advocate systemic change through one simple message, that everybody deserves a fair start in life. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Carter, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. So you are the founder of the Fair Start movement. Could you walk us through what that is? Sure. And I mean, I really don't like to say I'm the founder. There's nothing new under the sun. And there were probably dozens of people who were involved, um, but I facilitate a lot of the work. And right. it's really just based on a simple finding in research. When we looked at family planning policies and the right to have children around the world, we found something very strange, which is the world seemed committed to things like children's rights. And that could be embodied in something like the Children's Rights Convention. But when it comes to family planning systems, when it comes to the right to have children, it's based on what parents desire. Uh, it's not based on what children need. So we don't mm -hmm. actually consider children's rights until the children are here, which doesn't really make any sense. If you think about children's rights, we should have family planning systems. We should think about the right to have children in terms of collectively assuring that children are born and reared in conditions that comply with the Children's Rights Convention, that give children 
what rights guarantee them. And so what mm -hmm. we, we found was actually there's a very strange thing. Family planning systems around the world didn't, uh, weren't based on what children need. They were based on what parents want, and largely because uh, world leaders in the 20th century didn't want to invest in children. They didn't want to take all of the wealth at the top um, and ensure that all children get what they need. In fact, they were willing to privilege their own children, maintaining concentrations of wealth and power rather than raising up all children. And if they had created a family planning system based on what children need instead of what parents want, instead of this personal privacy system of family planning, they would have had to pay that. The other thing that would have happened in the, in the 20th century is if, you had, if we'd had to invest in children to give them everything they need to ensure that children are born in, what, in the conditions that comply with the convention, we would not have had growth. Uh, massive population growth, growth of economies that created uh, concentrations of wealth and power today. We would have, in fact, probably evaded the climate crisis and arced in at a much lower level of population, mm -hmm. also a lower level of consumption. So the bottom line is Fair Start was created to blow the whistle on the reality, which is that the, the climate crisis, the levels of inequity that we see today, all flow directly from decisions in the 20th century uh, made around family planning systems to treat them as personal and private based on whatever parents want to do. You can have kids in any conditions and any number of children. That was done to assure growth. It was done to pr protect concentrations of wealth and power from having to pay what they should pay. Um, and that mistake, creating a system based on what parents want instead of what children need, is what created the crises today. And Fair Start was created to offer the alternative, what we should have done in the 20th century, which is starting from a human rights system uh, that really begins with assuring all children a fair start in life, essentially what the Children's Rights Convention requires, which I'll end by saying, if we're going to think about children's rights and the Children's Rights Convention. These days, you probably better start with two very simple rights. Children have a right to a restored climate a restored environment. So that means 280 parts per million less of climate emissions and absolute biodiversity. Um, and they have a right to birth equity. There is no such thing as equality of opportunity with a bunch of rich kids and a lot of poor kids. All children have equality of opportunity, which basically means taking money from wealthy family and wealthy kids and giving it to poor children to assure equality of opportunity, because otherwise it's a lie. So that is what Fair Start was, was made to do, blow the whistle on what was done in the 20th century to create the crisis we face today and to offer a solution. All right. And so barring uh, not wanting to redistribute wealth in the 20th yeah. century, was this also about producing laborers and a workforce uh, to meet the demands of the growing economy? Absolutely. And you don't have to be a historian to see that. All you have to do is Google the term baby bus or underpopulation or low fertility rates. And what you'll see are popular media, you'll see today that mass media, popular media has created this narrative that the real problem today is that they're just not enough people, that women are just not having enough kids. Women are not doing what they were meant to do, which is become mothers. Um, if you look at how, how prevalent that narrative is, how concentrated it is, and it comes out of places like the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, what you realize is this whole system was built on a simple logic. 
which is if we create lots of people who really don't have a lot of means, they will become cheap labor, they will become consumers, and they will become taxpayers. And you create a pyramid of growth that enriches a few at cost to many. Basically, you convert town halls where people have a say over their lives into shopping malls where they don't have a say over their lives and you enrich a few people. And that's not pie in the sky thinking. Nobel laureate Stephen Chu called our economic systems a Ponzi scheme based on population growth that puts the benefit on a few today at cost to many in the future. And so, yes, uh, the, the bottom line is if you want to reverse economic systems that, that basically externalize their costs, you start by investing enough in children to ensure that they're born and raised in conditions complying with the Children's Rights Convention. But if you think that's the first human right, if you think that human rights begin with fairness and begin with fairly creating people and conditions in which they deserve, you know, we, we can take the wealth from the top that was made by externalizing its costs and use it instead to invest in children. Could you walk us through uh, more of the Children's Rights Convention? Uh, I don't think I know any of it off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, so it's got many articles that guarantee certain things to children, but in essence, it's based on the recognition largely that we are the product of the conditions in which we're born and raised. So that if we want a world that complies with human rights, we have to create people capable of engaging and, and creating and, and living out such a world. So it guarantees things like minimum levels of education, freedom from things like compulsory labor, minimum levels of health, welfare, safety, obligations on parents in the community to provide uh, certain things to children. And all of this is meant to uh, ensure that children develop into persons capable of systems of human rights and democracy. Now, if you look at the fast forward to the world today, you look at regimes like Russia that are blatantly violating human rights. Now we have the ICC issuing an arrest warrant for Putin. Putin's empire was built on depriving children of what they need under the Children's Rights Convention and paying women, pushing women to have as many kids as possible to create that pyramid. So Russians are more than happy to violate human rights in other countries. Those children were never really born, raised, developed in conditions where they were educated and prepared to develop systems of human rights and democracy. If they had been, they likely would have found ways to overthrow Putin before he ever engaged in what he's doing in, in Ukraine. We are, you know, you want a world that reflects human rights and democracy, you have to create people for that world. But because of wealthy elites, whether it's Putin, Bezos, Musk, or others, we have lived in a system where th there's this myth. Having kids is a personal, private matter. Uh, it's up to the parents. And all that did is enforce the status quo, where women mm -hmm. were pushed to have children. They didn't expect to give those kids what they needed. They thought it's okay for some kids to be born poor, some to be born rich. It's called fortune. It's magical. Some god from the sky decided I was born poor. This person was born rich. It's not a matter of policy. This is this lie. Uh, and Fair Start was meant to, to basically tell everyone this is a lie and to create an alternative, which is start with giving kids a fair start in life. Fairness means restoring their ecology to what it was pre-Anthropocene. And it means ensuring that each of them get equal opportunities. So you redistribute wealth between rich and poor kids. 
How did it become that having children became a personal matter? Because that was very much a matter of the church for a very, yeah. very long time. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, there were interventions in the middle of the 20th century around this developing idea of personal privacy. The idea of privacy really wasn't a thing uh, until it was developed, um, really most strongly developed in law in the 20th century through Louis Brandeis and others. And the idea being uh, you have a personal or autonomous sphere around you uh, in, in, with which others should not be able to uh, interfere. And of course, that existed in terms of property rights, but it didn't exist uh, strongly in, in other areas. One, this idea of personal private family uh, had, a, had a benefit and had a cost, and it was really developed in the 20th century. The, the benefit is it did... And it was used intentionally by, by governments in the middle of the 20th century to push back against church control of the family to authorize things like the use of contraception and abortion. That was done, in fact, largely intentionally to limit population growth um, because, as you all know, as you know, if you've sort of studied the history of Paul Ehrlich and debates about population in the 1960s and 70s, this idea of uncontrolled population growth was a concern. And the world did intervene, world leaders did intervene with this idea of ensuring women's right to some personal privacy in their, in their family planning decision-making um, to, to limit that growth. But by treating the act of having children and not having children or using contraception or abortion, both as part of this personal privacy sphere, they ignored the rights of future children and essentially mm -hmm assured a certain level of growth, not a catastrophic level of growth, which, you know, at that time there were, there were, you know, as it, let's assume now that the world is headed towards a future of 10 or 11 billion. If there had not been these interventions in the 1960s and seventies, the world could be headed towards 30 billion. We don't know what the figure would have been at the time. Women were having an average of five children per woman in the world, middle of the 20th century. Today, that number is you know, somewhere between 1.9 and 2.1. They halved it. But they did that, that idea of a personal privacy, my own private autonomous right to have children or not have children. The benefit was that's an accurate description of the right not to have children. Women should be left alone and autonomous, not forced to be associated with a child they don't want. That is a right. But by treating that as the, the description of the right to have children as well, this family, it, it did assure enough growth to make a lot of people money and enough growth to create the climate crisis and break our, uh, our atmospheric carrying capacities and other carrying capacity. It also never required redistribution of wealth to poor kids. Um, and and it, it, as I said, is sort of made invisible the future child um, mm. as a basis. So, so one way you can think about privacy is it's great, and the right to terminate a pregnancy or to use contraception can be the right to be left alone, the right to be autonomous. But when you think about the right to have children, we should, we should divide the rights and treat it as two rights. The right to be let alone as terms of not having children. But when you have children, it's in fact based on what children need. And it's much more of a collective right. So it's not the right to choose the timing, spacing, and number of children so that I could have 10 or have children in abject poverty. They starve to death their first year. Other kids are born with, with, you know, million dollar trust fund. That's not privacy. 
having children is an, an interpersonal, not a personal act of creating another, another individual. And we have to first comply with the Children's Rights Convention, assuring they're born into those conditions. And the only way to do that is through more of a collective right um, that gives kids what they need. And so we, we, we describe it simply as if it takes a village to raise a child, it absolutely takes a village to plan for a child. Uh, yeah. And so, so and, and we should think about fairness ecologically and socially when we do that planning together. So privacy was created with some good outcomes, but also some bad outcomes in the middle of the 20th century as a, as a concept to take um, family out of the control of the church and more into the control of the state. But it didn't go far enough. Mm, how interesting. I had never, I've never thought about it like that. Um, so, I mean, it would seem then if children, the Children's Right Convention is um, the right to restored, well, what Fair Start Movement is saying, restored climate and absolute, absolute biodiversity. Um, and currently it's education, minimum levels of education, housing, welfare, safety. Surely every country in the world is breaking the human rights, uh, the Children's Rights Convention. Yeah, I mean, to one, to one degree or another, certainly they're probably assuring it for their wealthy kids. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but in every country in the world, uh, poor children are absolutely not, in, not getting what they need under the convention. Um, I think that probably 20 years ago, nobody would have thought that, that climate restoration and biodiversity are, should be read as parts of the, of the Children's Rights Convention. Mm. But what we know is as the climate crisis has manifested is that even a one degree centigrade rise shows horrific impacts on infants and children. A neonatal development is, is stunted. So it's impossible to assure children the health, welfare, and safety that the convention both explicitly requires and certainly implies if you're not giving kids a restored environment. We can't allow the climate crisis to happen if we intend to protect children. We have to reverse it. Um, and so I think the only fair reading of the convention is that it does require um, a natural restored world and not the kind of anthropocentric mm. world that the Paris Agreement uh, set forth. And the Paris Agreement was just created by big businesses and governments that said, hey, let's continue to make money at cost to future generations, but let's do it in a way that's not evidently catastrophic, but it still included enough risk to cause infants um, the level of impact that we're seeing from even the current temperature rising. Could you speak more to that impact that we're seeing at the current temperature rises? Yeah, there are dozens of studies uh, that show that uh, infants today are subject to premature birth. Uh, simply from the current levels of temperature increases that we're seeing, the levels of pollutants that their mothers and infants uh, are subject to because of things like increased wildfires, um, increased levels of pollutants in the air from the um, businesses that are, that are creating the same methane and carbon emissions uh, are, are up. Um, the, the, expected level of growth and development of children in the developing world has reduced because of the impact of the climate crisis. That doesn't even include things like probable crop failures um, and other threats to food security because indirect things because of the climate crisis, as well as things like basic food sources uh, like oceanic fish um, that are now threatened because of the climate crisis. So if you look at an infant in the global south today and their prospects, 
it's reversing because of, of what we can anticipate as guaranteed impacts under the climate crisis. So for anyone that thinks the Paris Agreement is a sufficient answer to what children need under the convention, they're wrong. Um, and they're probably doing, you know, what a lot of people do when they think about ecological social policy. Like, well, we have to continue certain levels of economic growth, growth that benefits, I don't know, 2% of the planet um, in, in order to have legitimate policies. That's utter nonsense. The people at the top owe the money that they never paid the cost of. And that cost went on women and children who were never given what they needed under the Children's Rights Convention. And it's, again, again, simply because if you go back to the UN decision-making in the middle of the 20th century, they said, yeah, children deserve certain rights once they're here. But when it comes to family planning, we're never, good to, never going to assure that they're born and raised in conditions that comply with that convention. Why? Because we need them, lots of them, as cheap labor, hungry consumers, and compliant taxpayers. They divorced the idea of creating fair systems um, from what people actually are promised under rights convention. That was a terrible mistake. And I think the solution is, no, no political system is legitimate if it doesn't give kids a fair start in life in terms of climate restoration and social uh, equal opportunity. And, you know, you could take that as, well, we can go to the UN and ask them to adopt fair start as a standard, which we're doing. We can go to governments and say you can legislate to redistribute wealth and encourage smaller and more equitable families. And I think some people will want to engage in direct action and they'll target concentrations of wealth and power to pay what they owe. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I completely agree with you. Before we move on to what kinds of actions we could be taking and what we hope to be seeing and what is already seen, could you talk about how one of the myths and perhaps even pieces of evidence that we see in like developing nations is that, you know, you move in and then you can provide a certain level of education. You can give women access to contraception and all of this kind of thing. And so there's this idea that development brings people out of poverty. Um, and let's, let's remove the economic growth thing for a bit, but like we, we need to develop countries if we're going to protect children. Um, but what you're saying is sort of the, the economic system that we've exported around the world and this sort of logical fallacy of um, creating a, a, a private sphere and divor divorcing that from a public sphere means that actually the development that we are seeing isn't looking after children. Could you, could you just sort of tease that out for somebody who might think that what you're saying is quite antithetical to this idea that, well, development raises children's standards and so it's something we have to continue doing? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the answer was pretty simple. I mean, does development raise children's standard relative to what? If you're arguing that it raises standards in, in a diachronic fashion in terms of what the previous level of child development is, that may be true. So you, you may have, let's imagine company A goes into impoverished country B, um, you know, sets up a factory. Now it's paying wages to mothers and fathers and their children have a, register a higher level of income. Um, or in the United States, you have uh the government paying child tax credits to poorer families. And so all of a sudden they have a higher level of income on the books. Well, yeah, of course, they are at a higher level of development or income than before that happened. But that's not the standard to which we should mm. compare them to. Question is, are they receiving what the Children's Rights Convention requires them to receive? So what do the owners, what do the children of the owners of that company that went into an impoverished country. What are their children getting? 
Mm. What are the what are the children of the senators that pass child tax credits that you know just barely bring children out of poverty? What are their kids getting? And if the standard under the Children's Rights Convention is an absolute standard of health, welfare, and education, so we could imagine good doctor's visits, good food, um, and you know, here's a school where everybody agrees class size and good teaching result in these outcomes. Every child should get that. Uh, and instead of just bringing a company into an impoverished country or giving ch kids child tax credits, if you actually paid people to plan their families so that they can get kids into those conditions, paid them enough, um, you could achieve these absolute standards. Uh, there's way more money at the top today, trillions of dollars, uh, that was made by not assuring children conditions so they could become yeah. cheap labor than there is um, that, that then is reflected in the rise in children's uh, welfare. The, all of the gains in, in gross domestic product have to be divided by the number of people per capita income uh, in those systems. And, and I think this, you know, all of this might have been an argument the other side could have a comeback and say, no, there's been sustainable development. All of that may have been the case 10 years ago. The climate crisis does not make makes this a, a non-argument. The other side mm -hmm. loses. Sustainable development is a total failure in the face of the climate crisis, which is mm -hmm. driven by growth, driven by lack of ecological standards, um, and, and all, essentially drove benefits to the top at cost to the bottom and to future generations. So the, the answer is, it is wrong to bring kids into conditions that don't comply with the Children's Convention. We can avoid that by paying money into family planning systems, paying people to plan and to have resources that they need. And we have a right to take that money because the money at the top never paid the costs of its wealth that it was externalizing on others. And the last thing I'll say is and people say, well, again, this is pie in the sky. There is a program in Africa called the Rejoice Africa Foundation, uh, and it's being run primarily in Uganda that has a program called Seeds for the Future. Essentially, $40 enables families in, in parts of Uganda to set up savings accounts for their children and to engage in agroforestry where they're planting trees and kitchen gardens for bio, bio, food and biosecurity. They... The, that program is essentially climate loss and damage reparations to mm. future generations. You're paying kids into their savings accounts for the harm that we caused them. And you're also reforesting uh, those, those parts of the country as a form of creating uh, biodiversity. Also, those programs work with women's organizations to assure the kind of liberation that results in smaller delayed families. So the answer is, whatever the Paris Agreement or whatever world governments think they're going to do in terms of climate reparations. In fact, private individuals are already investing in direct accounts, direct children's savings accounts, uh, agroforestry that plants trees and kitchen gardens for food security directly to families there. That could model what governments ought to do uh, to try to change family planning and to and ensure biodiversity. Um, in a very realistic way. And so we're not waiting for governments to continue to sell out to companies um, and do things like the Paris Agreement. We're already trying to envision a future 
2100 or so that fits this concept, smaller families, biodiversity, climate restoration, and equality of opportunity through things like, like ch children's savings accounts. And that's in line with Partha Dasgupta's vision of a better future from Cambridge. Uh, I think that if you if, if anyone painted a vision of what the world ought to look like by 2100, it's probably Partha Dasgupta. Um, and it's a clear roadmap. This, is, this isn't fantasy or pie in the sky. This is what the future in climate re reparations ought to look like. Now, I'll end by saying we had, you know, people making 20, $28,000, a year donating $40 into a child savings account in Uganda um, as part of this process. If that's a percentage of what we owe the future, you can imagine what the CEOs of Exxon uh, and BP and other would owe. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a percentage of what we owe to the people that we've harmed in the global south through, through what we've done. This program seeds for the future. Question is, look, you don't want to take you know, your hundreds of millions and pay your percentage of that amount into this, you're part of the problem. And you're now a target uh, for people who are doing the right thing. You do owe that money. Uh, you know, talking to Lee Raymond, the former CEO of Exxon, one of the main drivers of the climate crisis, that he essentially set up the scheme of lies that hid all of the climate science. He has hundreds, his, he and his family have hundreds of millions of dollars made from those lies. They should be paying into this program. And if they mm -hmm. don't pay into this program, Governments are protecting them. They're all part of the problem. So mm -hmm. the answer is, I think there is a clear vision uh, based on, on Partha Desgupta's work and a method for getting to that future. Uh, some people are paying and some people aren't. But these people are part of the problem and our governments are part of the problem because our economic system is part of the problem. So what is, is there legal infrastructure in place that we could use to start forcing the redistribution of money? I mean, I was interviewing um, the founder of the Oxford's Climate Litigation Lab and he was saying, no, we're, we are, you know, we're seeing these lawsuits coming out against these uh, fossil fuel companies. You know, it's huge. It could be the, the biggest uh, damages case in the history of the world, this kind of thing. I mean, could we not as individuals or could a group not sue these other individuals who have hoarded money and sort of driven a huge amount of this problem um, for violating the Children's Rights Convention, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, there's a... One thing I want to make clear, I think, so there are legal processes to do this. One division, one distinction I think I want to make now is there are domestic uh, processes in each nation where we could use each nation's standards and thinking about this um, and, and what's required. But there are also international processes to get this done. And I think climate crisis is an international problem. It shows the limits of sovereignty uh, because emissions no, don't respect national borders. They mm -hmm. are created in the United States and China and they go to create the, the drought in the Sahel and, and endanger tens of millions of children based on the last UNICEF report. So I always want to favor international solutions and international standard. So I would start with the Fair Star Movement has a petition before the UN Human Rights Council that says you, the UN completely misinterpreted the right to have children and family planning systems instead of based on what parents want, whatever they want, which is what it is now. If they want to have 10 kids, if they want to have kids in poverty, that idea of a private right to have children, private family planning, personal privacy was a disaster. It was meant to enable certain levels of growth and to evade any obligation to redistribute wealth. That should be replaced. 
with a fair start standard that says the first human right on a list of any list of human rights, right to speak freely, right to engage in political process. The first human right is the right to a fair start in life. And that is defined as climate restoration and biodiversity and redistribution of wealth for equality of opportunity. We think getting that petition successfully uh, supported by other organizations and eventually for the United Nations to declare that every child has a right to a fair start in life as such would be the first step. Because then all of the, much the way the, the UN determined there was a right to a healthy environment recently and declared there's a right to a healthy and safe environment, that kind of sets the standard for all of the nations to then engage in their rulemaking and litigation and decision-making. We would want to start with that right to a, a fair start in life. And then domestically, yes, you can litigate around that right. In the United States, there's forthcoming constitutional litigation that says the U.S. Constitution guarantees a right to a natural, rewilded world. The UN, the United States was, in fact, founded on a vision of wilderness um, that made sense because your role in a democracy, as you add each person, your role gets diminished. So your political power is diminished as you degrade nature and the wild world. So John Locke's theory of freedom was really based on this idea of wilderness. Um, so there's, there's litigation in the United States that you can bring to establish the right to a rewilded world. And there's also litigation you can bring to push back against abortion limitations. Um, that, would, that would be based on uh, children's right to certain things as they're born into the world. Any limitations on a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy violates children's rights to these certain minimums. If basically, if you had to, mm -hmm. if governments had to pay for the conditions that children deserve, they would never ban abortion. They would never ban contraception. So it's one way, one way to attack those. So yes, there are now in terms of direct litigation against companies, it's harder. I mean, you could sue governments for not giving you these rights. In terms of suing the companies and getting the wealth directly from Exxon, BP, other fossil fuel companies, other bad actors, people that are responsible for methane emissions, it's more complex. I mean, governments can do it themselves through things like um, nuisance abatement because governments are having to spend exorbitant amounts of money because of these company, what these companies did, have done. So the governments can sue to get directly against the companies. In some cases, these companies have essentially defamed client sci climate scientists by denying climate crisis. They've, mm. they've harmed scientists' careers. That's an indirect way to get at it. Um, there, you know, like there are other ways, but it, it's just more complex when you want to sue the companies directly. But often governments can sue the companies and we can sue governments. But, but my, my overarching point is if we do this, we want to do it under an international standard that assures climate restoration and biodiversity and equal opportunities in life because if each nation each government goes off and follows their own standard uh like we recently saw hawaii uh starts to talk about a u.s standard of a healthy and stable environment which i think is a much lower standard then we might get into trouble we're much better to pursue a an, an universal standard uh, based on fair start in my opinion but 
What do we do about the fact that international standards are often ignored? So one example would be the current Children's Rights Convention, uh, yeah. Human Rights Convention. I mean, you know, it's the 20-year anniversary of the uh, invasion of Iraq this week. And so obviously sort of there's lots of information online about the fact that these war criminals are still walking about despite having been found to be, yeah. you know, war criminals. So these standards are often ignored because there's such a concentration of power of by in untouchable people. What do we do about that? No, you're right. I mean, I think you you can do both at the same time. I mean, you can say the the we we have an ideal uh, where we're going to pursue these international standards, and we at least get things like the UN saying there's a right to a healthy environment. And then in practice, we're using domestic or state systems uh, to go as far as we can towards that standard. So we say, look, this is the ideal. Uh, is an international standard of fair start. But in practice, we're going to have to start with lower standards at domestic levels. We're going to have to start by suing Exxon for climate denial and ruining mm-hmm. the scientists, you know, or, or we're going to sue the state of Texas because by banning abortion, it's ensuring just a stream of poor children that it then wants to use as cheap labor. Um, and that violates children's rights, but it also violates a woman's right to choose. So we, we're, we'll sort of pursue both at the same time. Right. Okay. And you mentioned direct action as well. Is this sort of what you mean by direct action that we could possibly see, or did you mean something else? No, it is. It is, it is direct action. I mean, I think you're seeing climate protests all around the world. And a real question is what do the protesters want? What are they demanding? Um, I think. Now, it could be, listen, you know, as a counterexample, it could be pro- climate protesters would say, we want to end fossil fuel subsidies. So they protest the fact that governments are paying fossil fuel companies or otherwise subsidizing them, giving them access to public lands. You saw the Biden administration give access to the Arctic, right? For, they want to end that. I think a, a sort of fundamental solution to the problem would be if parents of low means, impoverished parents, uh, maybe maybe even better intending uh, parents of impoverished people who want to have a child or two children, um, and they want that child to have the best possible prospects. Not just that child, but but the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren in perpetuity. If those people, protested, occupied, trespassed, engaged in direct action, but nonviolent civil disobedience, demanding wealth redistributed from a company like Exxon because the wealth doesn't reflect the cost uh, that we see by not ensuring children equality of opportunity. Instead, Exxon makes money because we have lots of people born with no standards that creates demand that creates the problem um if instead parents are saying we have the right to that wealth to reverse this process so that all children get this minimum standard of the convention so that the wealth in part by their choosing to redistribute the wealth to plan could result mm-hmm. in smaller families that doesn't create that demand that does ensure climate restoration that does ensure biodiversity you're getting an existential solution to the problem, not just 
uh, whack-a-mole where we're going to go after fossil fuel subsidies. They're going to go after uh, permissible levels of carbon emissions or maybe leaky methane wells. Um, you're looking at an existential solution where parents are saying, we should become people that don't exploit growth and inequity for the benefit of companies and economic growth. We want to become people that are born and raised in conditions that comply with the convention and that gets paid for by the wealth that never paid those costs. And doing that ensures smaller, more equitable families for the rest of our species foreseeable future. That's an existential solution. So I would love to see direct action climate protests that demand wealth for that purpose. Hmm. Family, people that want to have families those people don't have a lot. Maybe they're impoverished, but they're demanding redistribution for their kids so they can plan smaller, equitable, sustainable, regenerative families into the future. That, to me, is an existential who we should be solution and not just a what we should do solution. Um, yeah. And it reflects that right to a fair starting life, a right to a fair, free society of people comprised as such. And I think one way to think of it, I mean, I think, again, Partha Dasgupta's work is a little complex in terms of creating a vision for the future, although I think it's the right standard, but it's, it's a vision of the future could be, instead of creating people for town, for shopping malls, lots of people who didn't get what they needed growing up in massive disparity of wealth and opportunity, um, we want to create people for town malls. Fewer people with a lot in common who can communicate who can together make the rules under which they're, they're, they're bound. So fewer people in whom we invest more in a natural world instead of lots of people in whom we invest little in a concrete anthropocentric, you know, commercial world. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Again, this is, I'm just, I'm just parroting a lot of other people, but uh, it's town halls in nature is freedom and shopping malls. Uh, in a commercialized world, that's not freedom. That's people at the top sucking the value and the freedom out of others. Um, yeah. Free people live in town halls. And so we can take the money from the top to build that freedom. I mean, God knows people died in the past for visions of freedom that were a lie. And this is a real vision of freedom. Yeah. Uh, it just hasn't come to the point of people taking those extreme measures. But I think when the first coastal flooding occurs, people will realize the level of deprivation of freedom that we're being subjected to, and they'll take more extreme measures. I just wonder how we get that money, because there seems to be almost a slight sort of chicken in the egg problem, which is, of course, whenever you're tackling a systemic issue, it's the fact that you need to hit so many different things at once in order to almost like pull it off. Um, But people have smaller regenerative families and therefore we have less people available to be wage slaves. And that sort of tackles the precarity problem. And then that creates the redistribution mechanism because then those companies have to pay more. But until those companies pay more and people can provide what their children need, then at what point do you, are you able to trigger that redistribution mechanism? Like what is the first step to achieving, buying the direct action, which which we are seeing and we will continue to see more of? What is the other, the second step that we can all take? And people around the world in the global south, because this is a thing for them. Yeah. They have so few options, very little action available to them to, to choose a different way of being sort of caught into this globalized financial system that is exploiting them for their labor and their resources. What, what can they do? I mean, I think 
you know, a, short of legal measures, like the, mm -hmm. there is, we have a petition before the UN Human Rights Council. We have litigation that's going to come in the United States domestically. Um, and then, of course, that's the top-down legal measure approach. You're talking also about direct action, which is the bottom-up populist approach. Between those two, I think you simply have philanthropy, um, which is what do people choose to do with their money to try to make the world a better place? Um, mm. Effective altruism aside, <laughs> um, I mean, the question is, altruism, where did... Did you really own the money that you're being altruistic with or did oh, you not God, simply pay the, pay the costs? You have yeah. all this money because you externalize the costs on future generations and the environment and all of it. God, you know, all of these every year, there are more consumers to buy my product. So that's mm. not, you know, that that's not a that's not a good thing because those kids were never given what the children's convention required. So you let's put all that aside. But so there's philanthropy. I think if people say the best use of my philanthropic giving, whether I make $40,000 a year or $4 million, the best use might be to assure that every child born is born as close to the conditions of the convention as required ecologically and socially. Um, and that to do that, they'll be born into smaller, regenerative, low-consumption families that give kids equal opportunities. So not rich kids and poor kids, but kids in the middle. You're gonna pay for family planning reform. Um, and when I see people donating to a program like the Rejoice Africa Foundation Seeds for the Future campaign, I see them choosing to pay people to plan to make our future generations different people. I think that that is an effective way to model change. You have, people who make little money giving for this vision of a future, wealthy companies, wealthy, give, wealthy philanthropists should, should be giving their percentage, proportionate amount for those programs. So I think, I think, imagine, let me make it very simple. Microfinance is one of the most successful uh, means of getting towards sustainable development that the world has seen in the past several decades. And the basis for, you know, Nobel laureate awards, the, Imagine microfinance instead of like, I'm going to, you know, finance someone to buy a cow. I'm going to finance someone to build a well. I'm going to finance someone to plan their families in a way that creates smaller, regenerative, socially equitable families. That, I think, would have a huge impact to see even microfinancing on that level. It assumes the liberation of women because families are delayed and planned, so they're not forced to have children in a patriarchal world. I think that philanthropy can be an alternative between top-down systems and bottom-up systems. It can be a middle ground system where people realize the most effective use of your money is to pay people to plan families in a way that points towards the future that we want and deserve. And that future is biodiverse, it's climate restored, uh, and it's equal opportunity for kids. Um, it's the antithesis of a personal private right to have kids, which is just insanity. Um, if you think that, you know, someone should be able to choose to have 10 children in, in their, you know, they're a billionaire family that consumes at a high level, that's completely the antithesis of sustainability and regeneration. I quite like the figures that um, NGOs put out around different societal problems. So like we see, you know, th this is how much homelessness costs, for example, 
And this is how much it would cost to house all of the homeless in this country. And look, the, the cost to house them would be lower, you know. And, and so when you live in a sort of economic system that denotes a value to every single thing, and that is how people engage with it, it's very helpful to see those comparisons. Do we have any data on the cost of um, having such a huge population in that respect or, or having populations in which there are children who are living in, in poverty without access to the things that they need? Um, or also, do we have data on uh, the children of billionaire and how much they are costing the planet with their bad decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm just looking now. I think yeah. more than, we have we have uh, a list of, of figures. You know, it's funny because fair start is is largely normative. The idea is we should treat every child's right to a fair start in life as the first and overriding human right. We don't necessarily rely on on facts and figures. We just believe. Uh, it's it's evident yeah. that Children's Rights Convention says that it's pretty well established uh, that foregoing even one child. So if you were going to have three, you choose to have two. If you're going to have two sh- children, you choose to have one. That the carbon savings from from choosing to have one child fewer can be twenty times the levels of savings from things relative things like dietary change or choosing an electric car or moving nice. to a grid, um, that uh, is because over a lifetime, the amount of impact that people have on their environment is substantial, whereas uh, changing how we consume uh, and change this inter- instead of changing the number of consumers has a much lower impact. There's been some science published recently to try to debate those that 20 times figure, um, but I don't think it, does, I mean, perhaps it may reduce the figure to something like 15 times the impact. But regardless, according to the Yale Climate Policy Center, the impact of choosing smaller families, uh, certainly in the global north, in high consumption countries, it can't be, uh, there's no comparison. It's absolutely the most important thing we can do. And in parts of of the global south that are quickly going to raise their levels of consumption, there's no way around that. It also, at some point, holds true. So that that is, you know, I'll start with the first figure. Having a smaller family is 20 times more effective at reducing climate impact mm-hmm. than diet, transportation, or other things. Now, mm-hmm. why don't you hear that? Well, a lot of media and a lot of the discourse, of course, is commercial discourse. All you're seeing is advertising or content. And then even the New York Times or lots of the main media outlets you're not really reading news. You're reading content that's used as a vehicle to carry um, advertising and commerce. So it's much more likely that people are going to try to sell you on a climate solution that you can, they can make you buy than to tell you the truth that's having smaller families matters. This was important in the UK because uh, our, our previous iteration of our brand, Having Kids, had written an open letter to the royal family, to Kate and William, saying, you know, you're talking about having a third kid. You shouldn't have a third kid. You should stop it too and model yourselves, especially because you consume like nobody's business. You should model <laughs> yourselves for the rest of the world. Now, we didn't know at the time that Kate was already pregnant and we were not advocating that Kate aboard her royal child. Mm. We just simply wanted them to hold themselves out. While they chose not to do that, they didn't, they chose what said, we're not going to decide what we're going to do based on your letter. They sort of ignored it. We got a ton of press, press in the UK. Uh, Interestingly, um, Megan and Harry, 
did publicly say they were choosing to stop at two children for environmental reasons. They did so shortly after our letter, but also a letter by a great organization, Population Matters. So to answer your question a bit back at the figures here, um, it, whether a child, whether a woman today chooses to have one child more or one child fewer uh, will result in a difference of billions of people uh, by, let's say, 2100. So yeah. because there are so many people in the world, small choices have huge impact. And what you can assume is that if we're looking at a difference of, so let's say, one child more, one child fewer, and that's, that can absolutely happen based on societal influences like media around media discussions around underpopulation, low fertility rates. It can happen based on things like the proliferation of abortion ban. It's absolutely possible that we could go in either direction. The impact on biodiversity, on equity, um, on whether we have town halls in nature or shopping malls in a concrete world, that really depends on women having one or, one or two children more. Uh, and so that's, that is a figure we are, there's a 600% return on investments made in young women's education, um, relative to many other forms of philanthropy. Why is the return on investment so high for ensuring that young women, um, have access to classrooms, uh, training programs and the ability to put themselves in in positions to earn a lot more money? Well, one obvious answer is if they're doing that, they probably don't have kids. So you're delaying pregnancy, you're delaying fertility by ensuring that level of investment in women. It also, that, that form of liberation uh, can also uh, do things like ensure savings, uh, greater levels of savings, which can jump economies um, jumpstart economies into higher levels of development. But what, you know, what you're seeing tracks with the, the development of China, which is whether people like it or not, one outcome of China's one child policy was to liberate women because they were no longer in positions to be forced by their husbands and their fathers and their mothers and grandmothers to have lots of kids. They then were able to save money, make money, uh, make money, save money, and also delay having their first child. So that, that's a figure. I think another is that there's a, there's James Heckman, a Nobel laureate economist, co-authors, um, suggest that early childhood development programs have about a 13% return on investment. Um, again, for similar reasons, uh, you're, if you wait to give kids what they need later in life, you're not going to do things like ensure levels of empathy the evasion of things like antisocial uh, tendencies and behaviors that you get from early childhood development programs. So I recommend people to a website called zero to three.org. And it shows that, look, if you care about the future, you'll assure that children, you know, years zero to three are getting absolutely what they, uh, what mm. they need. Um, so those are some, some figures that show the importance of, family planning reform, early childhood development, um, and assuring, you know, family planning delay. I think just to tie up then, what kind of world could we provide then for every single child? We've said housing, welfare, biodiversity, all this kind of thing. What does that actually look like 
um, yeah, on paper. And could you also speak to the fact that children deserve to have happy and healthy parents, which are not provided by our current economic system, perhaps? That's a great point. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny because the concept of parental regret, their parents come out and say, I regret having kids, probably a complete taboo 20 years ago, but today it's becoming more and more common. So mm. did something go wrong in our family planning system? If a significant number of parents wish they'd never been parents? Yeah, they mm. shouldn't have been parents. Something went drastically wrong. Um, so I think on, on paper, what is it, what does it really realistically look like? I think this is where we have to factor in migration and climate migration. Um, there probably the arc looks like, um, let's sort of think about two different worlds. So let's say here in the year 2023, you know, at 8 billion people in the world, um, high growth rates in the South, low growth rates in the North, massive wealth in the North, little wealth in the South. And we are sort of pointing towards 2100, the future. I think there are two ways we could probably go. We could continue on this path. The global South population will increase substantially. Global North will decrease substantially. Wealth will probably stay somewhat the same we will absolutely go past, um, you know, the, the current projections of the Paris Agreement, probably towards two degrees centigrade rise, yeah. massive loss of biodiversity, uh, massive loss of food security, unknown outcomes in terms of feedback loops, methane releases in the Arctic. So essentially a world of 10 to 11 billion massive inequity, massive de degradation of our systems. Or we could take the wealth in the global north, which was made by externalizing costs on future generations on the environment. We could use that to pay people around the world to plan delayed, smaller, and more equitable families where we're taking money from rich kids and giving it to poor kids through things like baby bonds. You put a savings account for a poor kid, they get their own trust fund. We could do that in a way that by 2100, arcs our growth rate from now at about two children per woman to about 1.5. And really moving towards 2030, we can reduce growth in the South, migrate a lot of people in the most climatologically sensitive areas into parts of the global North that are more secure um, and end up instead of that future, um, we could end up at a future of about 4 billion, 4 to 6 billion with much greater equity. Those kids are all born with equal opportunity, not rich kids and poor kids. Wealth has been redistributed. At that point, because of the reduction in growth and evasion of carbon, methane, and other emission, we might have begun to restore biodiversity, which is required by the biodiversity agreements internet. And we can also assure at that point, we're, we're, you know, moving from a world that looks like, you know, shopping malls and concrete towards a world where people have a say over the rules under which they have to live. They can participate in democracies. So I think on paper, it absolutely looks like the right to take wealth from the top to pay people to plan smaller, equitable families. And that's the difference between a world of 10, 11 billion highly unequal uh, people without biodiversity in a world of four to six billion, much more equal 
equality of opportunity, egalitarian societies of democracy in a lot of biodiversity. And the big difference is, do we take the billions at the top and pay people to plan their families? In some cases, migrate their families to secure areas, or do we not take that well? And we have petitions before the United Nations demanding that they say we have a right to take that wealth. We have litigation coming in the United States that demands that wealth. And we think that philanthropy should model that. People are going to give, they should give for family planning reform that starts with the Children's Rights Convention. Because in the end, there's, there's really no justification for following any rules for any compulsory system of obligation like governance, uh, legal systems or anything. There's, why should we do that? If we're not guaranteed, we as in people born into the world, Children's Rights Convention requires, why should we do that if we don't get a fair start? We don't get mm -hmm. minimal levels of welfare. We don't get a say in our government through smaller uh, societies. If we don't have the freedom of nature, why should we follow the rules if we're just born to enrich other people in systems of mm -hmm. commerce mm -hmm. instead of born into systems of democracy um, that, that vision that John Locke had of town halls in nature, why should we follow the rules? So I think, look, we all know that wealth was made by externalizing costs. We have the right to take the proportion and to use it to bend the arc. So on paper, I think it's very possible to bend the arc if we move money into family planning. Carter, brilliant. Thank you so much. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Absolutely. It's, it's the Rejoice Africa Foundation um, and their Seeds for the Future program, which is a partnership with fairstartmovement.org. Um, but but Mseway Robert and his partners, um, uh, Kabuha Jamima and some other folks there are, I think, leading the charge. They reject this idea of personal private right to plant families, which is convenient for Elon Musk and his kids. Um, and they, they believe in child-centric planning towards this better future. And their website is just uh, rafug.org. It's the Rejoice Africa Foundation, and they're based in Uganda. So rafug.org, Rejoice Africa Foundation, and especially their child-centric seeds for the future uh, foundation as a means of, of envisioning and acting towards the world that the convention, Children's Rights Convention, uh, should have created, but never did because it was never used as the standard for family planning. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have been on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. If you want to read Carter's book, Justice as a Fair Start in Life, and learn about the Fair Start movement, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.